four score and oh, never mind. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn in the word of God this morning to Luke chapter seven, Luke chapter seven, as we get started. I don't have my shortcuts on the desktop, but I know they are in this folder so we can find them. Moving on this morning to episode 19. Episode 19 in the Galilean ministry of Jesus Christ. If you have a Harmony of the Gospels handout, then uh, what are we doing this morning? We are turning the page to the top of page 2. All right. The widow's son, Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. Seven verses long, pretty simple. Kid dies, Jesus performs a miracle, comes back to life. Any questions? Well, there might be a little bit more to it than that. We'll uh, start with prayer and then we'll study our text, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We humble ourselves before your authority and the authority of your truth. We ask, Father, we might have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, two brief administrative notes as we get started. Uh, this morning we may have a, uh, an interruption, a technician coming in to work on the photocopier. So if that indeed happens... He's supposed to call first, so that means my pocket will buzz. But if he comes in without calling, then uh, I've already given Casey the instructions and he can walk back there with him to the office and remain there while he's back there fixing our machine. Also, uh, no class next week. Uh, ladies are still welcome to meet for prayer, but next week is the Spokane Bible Church Conference. So we will be in Spokane, Washington, the fair state of Washington, being tested beyond our ability to bear, but we shall... Uh, return nonetheless uh, the following week. So uh, ladies can meet for prayer. There just will not be a Life of Christ Bible study. And I know last time this happened, uh, you went ahead and you moved the prayer time. 10 o'clock prayer time. Okay. All right then. Well, Luke chapter 7, episode number 19 in the, uh, in the Galilean ministry. You will note that uh, as you look at your, through, uh, your harmony table, that this episode is not covered in Matthew, Mark, or John. That, in other words, this is an episode that is unique to the third gospel, to the gospel of Luke. Part of the um, aspect of harmonizing the gospel is observing which accounts are unique to particular gospels, uh, which accounts are covered by all four gospels. Uh, you can kind of look at the, the harmonization in different ways. This is uh, one that is limited to Luke alone. Luke, you recall, when we understand Matthew gives the gospel of the kingdom or the gospel of the king, uh, Mark presents Christ the servant, Luke presents Christ the man, uh, and John presents Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, with his deity emphasis. With Luke, in the humanity that we have, uh, there are many, many stories that Luke records that really highlight uh, what we would think of as maybe human interest stories. We would think of them as the humanity side of things and the, the real touching aspect of, of a mother and a widow and, and she's lost her child here. It's not surprising that this is uh, the story that we would have, that Luke would be the, 
the, the uh, author of the gospel that records this. Interesting that Matthew does not record it. Matthew uh, records uh, a subsequent resurrection, that is the, uh, well, let me double check myself, the raising of Jairus' daughter. And uh, I may have to double check myself on that. Jairus' daughter, yes, is recorded by all three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's episode number 30 in the Galilean ministry. But Matthew does not record this resuscitation or this. Sometimes it's called a resurrection. I prefer resuscitation. We've, we believe Matthew is there. Matthew is one of the 12 that's following. But, it, uh, but he does not record that in his gospel. All right. Let's read through the text then, verses 11 through 17. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain. And this is, uh, by the way, immediately following the healing of the centurion's servant in verses 1 through 9, the material we've been dealing with for the last few weeks. So verse 11, soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out over Judea and in uh, all the surrounding district. All right, so there's verses 11 through 17. Immediately it follows the episode with the centurion and the healing of the servant there at a distance. And it immediately precedes what happens here in verses 18 and following uh, where the disciples of John, and John the Baptist who's in prison, is going to send some messengers to Jesus for some clarification. And we will deal with that coming up. In fact, I'm very eager to uh, to deal with that coming up. But for this week, though, let's deal with the raising of this of this son. Now, of all the miracles the Lord has done to this point, this is the first of the resuscitation miracles. He has done a fair number of, of healings. He's he's uh, cast out some demons. He's done some other miracles. He hasn't done some of the big the big ones yet. Uh, the multiplying of the loaves hasn't done that yet. Hadn't fed the five thousand yet. Uh, he hasn't walked on water yet. He hasn't uh, said to the waves, "Peace, be still." A lot of those are still coming up. The more well-known miracles are still coming up. But he has done a fair number of miracles, healings, and so forth. But here is the first of three resuscitations. When it comes down to it, Elijah in the Old Testament brought one person back to life. Um, Elisha, who had a double portion of Elijah's spirit, uh, was the successor to Elijah. Elisha brings two back to life. Uh, one while he was still alive, and then one he does, he does a miracle posthumously when uh, a dead man is thrown into the grave where, Elijah is, where Elisha is buried. And uh, when, the, when the corpse touches Elisha's bones, the, the, the corpse is brought back to life. So Elisha actually accomplishes two resuscitation miracles if you count the one after you know with his dead bones i guess you can credit elijah with that anyway elijah does one elisha does two and then uh, jesus christ does three and it's, it's an interesting parallel more than just the numbers involved the parallels between elijah and elisha are extraordinary when you look at the uh, the work of jesus christ and some of that we'll touch upon here today all right we'll start there's eight things we're going to get out of this study the first one we'll deal with nain a city called Nain, N-A-I-N. 
And I meant to uh, get some maps up here. We can still get them up here probably pretty quickly with the Logos software up and running. But a city called Nain, Luke 7:11, And uh, Nain was in uh, Galilee, in the Galilean region, a little bit east or south of, uh, southeast of, of uh, Nazareth. If I can find a good map of uh, Galilee, I'll put this up here in a moment. Um, scholars are divided as to whether uh, Nain and Shunem are in fact different places or possibly one and the same. Uh, you can read different uh, archaeological materials and some, I th- I'd say the majority, prefer to distinguish Nain from Shunem in the Old Testament from uh, 2 Kings chapter 4. Uh, whether they're the same exact location or differing locations nearby uh, doesn't really matter. It doesn't really affect what we deal with here in this episode because the, the comparisons between them are unmistakable. Uh, so if they weren't one in the same location, they were within probably four to five miles of one another and, and so close to one another on uh, in this particular region that uh, it's... Close enough for, for government work, we used to say. It's close enough to not really make a difference. It's kind of interesting if they are one and the same. There is uh, uh, some scholarship that suggests that the name Shunem itself was shortened, that it dropped the Shu and was shortened to just simply Nen or Nain, uh, Neem, actually. And then the, 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 from the M to the N is, is uh, pretty common as some of these names happen. So etymologically, the name Nain could be a shortened form from Shunem, which got shortened to simply Nem or Nim, and then ultimately Nain. Whether that's the case or not doesn't really affect our study here this morning. As far as the maps go, let me pull up my maps, and um, you get kind of a picture. You probably have maps in the back of your Bibles that uh, will portray this for you. Sometimes the... uh, this is a real basic map set. I usually don't refer to it, but sometimes there's some pretty useful studies in there. Palestine and Christ time. No. Now you know why I don't usually open it. <laughs> sometimes they've got some good maps and sometimes they don't. Thomas Nelson's Bible Maps and Charts. We'll give this one a try and see from the New Testament. Gospels, Gospel of Luke, and maybe the simplest thing we can do is just do a search for Nain. Okay, well... Lesson learned. I'll have this ready for next week. Uh, but it's southeast of, of, uh, of uh, Nazareth. It's within view of Nazareth, coming as it is on the north slope of its hilltop. You can look across the, uh, the valley there, and you can see Nazareth on uh, another hilltop nearby. So they are within view of one another, just separated by a few miles. Uh, let's look at Second Kings chapter 4 and remind ourselves of what happened there at Shunem. The scholars that think that they were on the same site, um, obviously have them co-located. The, the scholars that believe they were on different sites usually put Nain on the north slope of this hill called Moreh, or Mount Moreh, 
not to be confused with Mount Moriah, uh, but Moreh is the hilltop, M-O-R-E-H. And uh, the scholars that put them on different locations will put Nain on the northern slope and will put Shunem on the southern slope, uh, just about four miles apart from one another. Second Kings chapter 4. And um, this widow here with the oil. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. And the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go, borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour out into all these vessels and you shall set aside what is full so she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons they were bringing the vessels to her and she poured when the vessels were full she said to her son bring me another vessel and he said to her there is not one vessel more and the oil stopped then she came and told the man of god and he said go sell the oil and pay your debt and you and your sons can live on the rest that is a fascinating story i mean the miracle itself is fascinating, but the the impact of that demonstrates that when it comes to faith and when we expect God to answer our prayers, when we expect God to supply, we don't want to limit what we expect him to do. In other words, uh, it was entirely up to her how many vessels she chose to assemble, and had she accumulated more vessels, then more oil would have been forthcoming. But to the extent that she assembled these these pots and jars and and uh, tanks and whatever she got, they could have been of all shapes and sizes, but to the extent that she gathered those, that expressed the capacity of her her faith or the capacity of her expectations. And uh, like like uh, Spurgeon was very fond of saying, we have a great God. We need to expect more uh, from what He is able to provide. Anyway, there's this widow. And then we're introduced to this woman here in Shunem. There came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem where there was a prominent woman and she persuaded him to eat food. And we talked about this with the gift of hospitality on uh, Sunday morning. She persuaded him to eat food. And, and I mentioned that Sunday morning and I've continued to study that. I don't find where it's really that difficult to persuade any man to eat food. But here she is doing this. And... Um, and then she sets apart a room and she has a hospitality ministry for him. At any time that he comes through town, she uh, has this um, location there for him to eat and for him to, to sleep. Now, the uh, promise comes that this woman's going to have a child. And uh, in verse 16, he said, at this uh, season next year, you will embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O oh man of God, do not lie to your, to your maidservant. And uh, he says, no, no, you're going to have a son. And the, the vocabulary in that's quite different when he says you shall embrace a son. It's, it's an awkward construction. It's a, it's a difficult verb and an awkward construction anyway. Not found elsewhere. It certainly isn't found. It's not a phrase that Elisha's fond of using or anyone else for that matter throughout the old testament and it's so unique and it stands out so remarkably that it has caused a lot of legends to spring up and a lot of uh jewish traditions with the prophet habakkuk uh in the book of habakkuk habakkuk means embraced and so a lot of legends come up that habakkuk is the uh the promised son that's embraced here we don't know that but 
this is where the miracle comes in. The woman conceives and bears a son, and, and then what happens, though, is this child dies. And we read about this here in verses 18 and following. When the child was grown, the day came that he went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said to his father, My head, my head. And he said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her lap until noon and then died. So she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. And, you know, the room that was set apart for Elisha any time Elisha is passing through town. And so that's the, uh, the bed that she lays him on. Anyway, so she comes all the way to Mount Carmel to, uh, to get Elisha and the, the things that happen here. Anyway, uh, this is the miracle where Elisha brings the child back to life. Down in verse uh, 34 and uh, verse 35, he returned and walked in the house once back and forth and went up and stretched himself on him. And the lad sneezed seven times and the lad opened his eyes. All right. There's a lot to the methodology that I'm not prepared to explain this morning with the, the breathing and the sneezing seven times and lots of other things. But anyway, we'll just simply accept the fact that here is one of Elisha's two resurrection miracles. And it takes place at this time and in the context of the uh, of the widow's son at Nain. So here is a little bit of local history. Now, you can imagine. Well, let's return back to Luke 7 now for the moment. You can imagine. If uh, we all it's human nature. Everywhere where we live or where we grow up or different places, if something significant happened there, <laughs> is that spoken of? You know, is that remembered? Is that a part of the, 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 the state or the city or the family's traditions? Of course it is. Now, you imagine you're growing up, you're in Nain, and something significant happens in Nain, such as, or in the neighborhood of Nain, such as one of the three miraculous resurrections of the Bible, that would be significant. And this is exactly what happens here as uh, this funeral procession is marching out and uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is marching in. It's almost you you would view this as a as a coincidence of of biblical proportions, because I don't believe in coincidences. I believe that everything God does, he's doing for a reason. And at the very moment that the Lord is arriving, it's a 20 mile journey thereabouts from Capernaum and say he left early in the morning. You can make 20 miles in one hard day of travel. Uh, if, for instance, the Roman roads are, are uh, well-maintained and providing for that, they could have made this journey from uh, Capernaum to Nain. And they happen to be arriving at the same time that this funeral procession is coming out. And so, depending on how wide this gate was, and Nain was not that large of a, of, uh, of a city, it was really more of a township, but it did have somewhat of a wall and a gate. So, Obviously, it's not allowing for traffic to go both directions at the same time. Somebody has to stop so that uh, either the the funeral can come out or Christ and his disciples can go in. And uh, this is where now the the collision takes place and where the miracle is going to take place. Now, under point two, let's take a look at this dead man. It's, uh, It's a fascinating vocabulary study. Coming as it is, as a, as a participle of thanesco, that means to die. And um, the verb thanesco, T-H-N-E-S-K-O, it's right here. Theta, nu, eta, thanesco is the verb, thanesco, to die. But what we do is we double this first, uh, this first consonant, 
we've made out of it as a participle. We've made a perfect participle, and it's it's. I, I enjoy it just for the irony of the of the of the tense. The perfect tense is a past completed action with present ongoing results. So the past completed action is his death, with the present ongoing results that he continues to be dead. He died and continues to be de- dead. You see the kind of the irony of that, or maybe a little bit of the the humor. Well, of course he continues to be dead. That's the way it works. When you die, you're dead. Okay? But it's, it's startling in this context because he died in the past, continues to be dead, but he's about to be not dead anymore. Right? He's about to be returned to life. He's about to be restored to life. So in, in the context of this passage, the, the perfect active participle of Thanesco is, is not only is it vivid, but it's, it's almost foreshadowing. It's almost... Um, you know, on the edge, the miracle here on the edge, you just know what's going to happen as as the Lord and his party collide with the funeral procession in their party. And and there's the bottleneck right there at the gate. The dead man, a man who has died, continues to be dead, is being carried. Passive verb here is being born. Prospero is being carried, not Prospero, but we can pull it open here. This one I know I can find because it's in Luke 7, 12. The, um, I got so excited talking to Casey before class this morning. We were talking about the Bible software. We were back there in the, looking at the different products that are available. Drooling over the fact that 3.0 is going to be released by the end of this month. And some of the new features that are going to be available once that new release is out. All right, here's your Tethnakos. Here's your dead man. And uh, don't do that. Cooperate. Switch to black. How about that? All right, so there's your dead man. And he's being carried. He's being carried in a passive voice. And the fact that um, the, the, the procession is on the way, that they are taking him to the burial, which archaeology has determined on the eastern side of the city, uh, was where they had the, the different locations there for burying. He is the only begotten son, the monogonase of his mother, herself the widow. And Terry will recognize, Bob will recognize the... Um, the um, maybe you won't recognize it. Ah, no, you won't recognize it. Never mind. Dead man being carried out. Thirdly, he's the only begotten son. He is the only begotten son. Identical language to John three sixteen. Identical language to Hebrews eleven. Significant terminology when you deal with the monogenes huios, the only begotten son. You can imagine here is now Jesus Christ coming face to face with not only this coffin, not only with this, this um, container that has him here. Uh, it's called here, he, he reaches out and he touches the, uh, the thing and, and makes the crowd stop, the coffin in verse 14. 
But coming face to face with this woman in verse 13, he's going to have a command for the mom. He's going to have a command for the son. But the language of the only begotten. In this case, um, well, obviously, John 3:16 we're familiar with. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, but other passages. Uh, Hebrews 11. This great hall of fame of faith where Abraham, by faith, offers up his son. And uh, he receives him back as a type. It says in verse 17, Hebrews 11:17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Now, what does that say about Ishmael? He had other sons. What does that say about uh, the the seven princes of of, of uh, Keturah, the the later wife that he took after the death of Sarah? Uh, there were other sons, but Isaac was the unique, the one of a kind, the son unlike any other. And that's really the the best way we want to take monogenes instead of begotten, the. Uh, This uh, monos, we're fine with that. That's one, uh, whether you're dealing with only begotten or one of a kind. It's it's the mono prefix that means one. But genes, rather than relate genes to the verb genao, which means to give birth or to bear a child, genao, the the better way to handle monogenes is to consider it like uh, like a genus or a kind. You've been in biology class and you have your animals and you break them down into their kingdom and their phylum and their genus and their species right you ever classified animals that way in, in different things like a cat is a, a feline right because they come from the genus of felidae whatever and then the species depending on what kind of cat they are you know there's a difference between a house cat and a mountain lion right but they're all come they're all felines like dogs are all canines, whether they're your little mutt-mutt or whether it's a, a wolf or a coyote or something like that. They all come from the kind, the genus of, uh, of canines, even if they have different species within that. So if you think of genus as, uh, as kind, then a monogenes is a one-of-a-kind. It is a unique. It is a son unlike any other son's. See, God the Father has other sons. You and I are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. All right? Sons and daughters by virtue of our overwhelming female presence here this morning. We are sons and daughters of God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. We are brethren, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. So the Father has many sons. God the Son was pleased to bring many sons to glory by virtue of his finished work of Christ on the cross. But Jesus Christ continually, eternally, is the monogenes, the, uh, the only begotten, that is the one-of-a-kind, unique. He will eternally be the unique Son of God by virtue of who he is. And so we want to examine this, this context of the passage because monogenes can refer to a only child. And I believe here with this widow, it does refer to an only child. But it's not limited to an only child. 
Because Isaac was not an only child. Jesus Christ is not an only child. But he's unique. Isaac was unique. And it may be that this boy here was unique for any number of reasons. But he is an only begotten son. He is a monogenes huias. And here comes Jesus Christ face to face with a widow who is grieving over the death of this only begotten son. And it's of all the miracles he's ever done. How many have we covered so far? Several. But of all the miracles he's done to this point, how many has he done without being asked? This is the first one. See, with all these other miracles, somebody's come to him. Uh, in, in some cases, he did the asking first. You know, he'd ask the man, you know, do you wish to be well? And he said, oh, well, you know, I've got nobody to lift me down. And when the water's stirred up and other people get in there first and so on and so forth. But here is, here is coming face to face with this, with this widow and with this coffin. And nobody says a thing. Nobody asks anything. He just stops the whole procession. He touches the coffin, brings everything to a stop. Gives the mother an order, gives the son an order. And the miracle is accomplished. And, and this is sparked, we're told, this is sparked by his emotions. All right, we're going to have to spend some time on this because, we, uh, because we're so doctrinal. <laughs> and when you're very doctrinal, sometimes you have problems with emotional passages. Well, this is an emotional passage. And it says when, in verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her. See, there's no rule anywhere that says if you're spiritually mature with maximum doctrine and residency that you lose all your compassion. We're not trying to become Vulcans in our Christian way of life. We should have compassion. We should have a heart of love. Jesus did. Do we view him as being some weak sister? And No, not at all. Legitimate compassion. Probably in ways that you and I could never imagine not being in the position he was in. But here he is in this position <laughs> knowing as, as an only begotten son with his own widowed mother knowing as the cross was approaching, he's still couple years away from it but knowing as the cross was approaching the kind of anguish she was going to have and so uh, his emotions then spark this miracle point four the lord felt compassion the lord felt compassion the lord felt compassion now put the lord in quotes i didn't realize this until I was reading um, Tom Constable's uh, study notes on this passage. Tom Constable's a Dallas Seminary professor and has taught um, for decades at, at the seminary. And he's published basically a commentary, his, his teaching notes on every verse of the Bible. And uh, in this passage, he made an observation that I would have never spotted probably in a million years. But he pointed out the use of the Lord here in this passage is the first time that Luke ever uses this title referencing Jesus Christ. This is Luke's first narrative use of the Lord as a reference to Jesus. 
This is Luke's first narrative use of the Lord as a referent to Jesus. And I'm taking Tom Constable's word for it at the moment. I did go back briefly and scan through the first six chapters of Luke, and I haven't spotted other uses of Lord. There are places where it comes in quotations. People come up to him and call him Lord in in discourse, in direct conversation. But this is the first narrative use. This is the first uh, application where just the author, where Luke just simply says, the Lord said something. The Lord did something. The Lord. So it's the first use where the phrase of the Lord, ha kurios, the Lord, addresses, specifically refers to Jesus Christ as ha kurios, as the Lord. Okay? And you say, well, big deal. Of course he's the Lord. <laughs> no, that's the point. It is a big deal. Yes, he is the Lord. And we can't assume because we call him Lord all the time, right? We call him the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. We have this as a part of our vocabulary, but we've got to put ourselves back into the gospel context, into the gospel um, setting where they were anticipating their Christ and where if they understood it properly, they would understand that the Christ when he comes would be God himself. It would be the Lord himself. God himself would be with us. It was prophesied. It was promised. And yet, when he made himself out to be God, they accused him of blasphemy. They wanted to stone him for asserting his own deity. It is significant. The use of the Lord as a reference to Jesus. Ha kurios. Now, kurios itself can mean Lord of any kind. Your, your supervisor, your employer, your military commander. Uh, any any governmental authority, any authority over you, you could call Lord. It's almost like the term sir in the English language. When you speak to somebody and say, yes, sir. Or um, it's just a, it's an address, it's a polite address of respect for someone who may not be an authority over you, but they are, they are in some kind of authority, and so you have respect for their position. See, and there's lots of uses of curios there. But curios, when it stands as a substantive, when it stands by itself, the Lord. The Lord of what? Well, the Lord of everything. It's just the Lord. You might have a Lord of Galilee, a Lord of Canaan, a Lord of, of uh, Rome, a Lord. You could have lords in all kinds of contexts. A husband would be the Lord of his wife, as, as uh, Sarah called Abraham Lord. Uh, it, it, there's thousands of lords, millions of lords all over the world. But when you talk about the Lord, what have you just done? You just set everything else aside and you're looking at Jehovah. You're looking at Yahweh, the Lord God, Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, the one and only. And it, it, is, so, it, it, is, it is so identified with the, the uh, Jewish expectations of who God is. Remember that the name Yahweh, the YHWH name of Yahweh, you have right here. This was the holy name of God. To the Hebrews, it was so holy they wouldn't use it. They, would, they could pronounce Elohim, no problem calling him Elohim. They could pronounce El Shaddai, not an issue. They could talk about El Elyon, uh, God, uh, the high, God, the, El Shaddai is God Almighty, and El Elyon is uh, the Most High. All right, You could talk about um, these other names for God, but when it came to Jehovah, when it comes to Yahweh, they would not pronounce it. They were so reverent for that, for that term. 
And so rather than pronounce Yahweh or Jehovah, they would substitute Adon or Adonai, which is right here. Adon or Adonai. And so, which is the word Lord. And so rather than calling him Yahweh, they would substitute Lord. And so to a Jewish person living in the first century that has, that studies their Bible, they have a complete canon of scripture so far as they know. They've got Genesis to Malachi. They've got a, a book of the Bible. They've got a, a, not 39 books, it's, what is it, 22 books in the Hebrew uh, Bible. But they've got Genesis to Malachi. They've got their whole canon of scripture. Okay, and they're waiting for Messiah. They're waiting for Messiah and they're worshiping the Lord. Adonai. Adon is Lord. Adonai is my Lord. All right. So they're worshiping Adonai, their name for Jehovah. They're worshiping the Lord. And so when Jesus Christ accepts this title of the Lord, that's not accidental. When he ministers and reveals himself as Ha-Kurios, in Hebrew, he's admit, he is calling himself Adonai. Right, the Lord. He's calling himself Jehovah, Yahweh. It's unmistakable. And uh, so when, it, when we read about it here, the Lord saw her and he felt compassion. Uh, this is a declaration of Jehovah, a declaration of Yahweh, the God of Israel that they have been waiting for to come and to, and to, uh, to be their Messiah, to be their, their Christ. Luke's first narrative use of the Lord as a reference to Jesus. And we've had studies on them in the past. Uh, we won't go into them this morning, but Hakurios is the Greek title. Adon, I should have transliterated those. I stopped transliterating the Greek some time ago, but I should have. This Adon is um, A-D-O-W-N right here. If you want to put an apostrophe in front of the A, you can do that. Apostrophe, A-D-O-W-N, Adon. And then right here is just simply Y-H-W-H. Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. A-D-O-W-N for Adon. And then Yahweh. Secondly, Let's look at these emotions that he had. Eris passive of Splunk needs a my. Splunk needs a my. <laughs> SP, if you think the Greek sounds weird, just hold, hold, hold on. Splunk needs a my. S P L A N G C H. Are you following this? S P L. A-N-G, this becomes an N-G because it's in front of the, the C-H. C-H-N-I-Z-O-M-A-I. Splunk-needs-am-I. Splunk-needs-am-I. The noun form is Splunk-non. And the gamma, which is usually just a simple G, becomes an N-G in front of another gamma or in front of uh, a chi or in front of a, uh, a kappa. Here we have it in front of a chi. Splanknon. S-P-L-A-N-G-C-H-N-O-N is the noun form. And splanknon refers to your guts. <laughs> refers to your intestines or your bowels or 
Sometimes even uh, for females, it references the, the womb. Okay? It simply, it could, it could reference the liver. It could reference the kidneys. It could reference anything internal. It tends to not reference the heart because cardia usually takes that, uh, takes that function. But any internal organ other than heart, where cardia is, is the, the dominant term, splanchnon covers pretty much anything else. Cardia is more focused on the heart organ. Splanchnon could refer to the heart, but really references anything that's inside of there. Anything that Galen or Hippocrates or these ancient Greeks, uh, you know, learned how to remove and learned how to do autopsies with and, and investigate and so forth was considered splankna, plural or splanchnon, singular. Inward parts, bowels, and affection. Now, splanchnizomai means that those, uh, those inner parts are churning. <laughs> Those inner parts are, are, are growling, they're grumbling, they're, they're, uh, they're gurgling, they're making noises, they're just rumbling. And the, the imagery of this is all metaphor. The imagery behind this is that the, these terms came to be used for the, the seat of the emotions, the place where emotions were then uh, launched forth. See, and it's kind of, I mean, it's a little gross to talk about, you know, bowel movements or what have you, but it's referencing bowels. It's referencing the churning. It's referencing um, the fact that, that you're being stirred up and, and something that's just being, being, uh, churning within you and grumbling and, and rolling and, and, and all that has got you so worked up that it then expresses itself in terms of an emotional uh, action of some sort. And it could be good, it could be bad. It could be everything from, from, from uh, uh, sexual passions to anger to temper to um, joy to sorrow, there's nothing really in the, in the vocabulary that speaks of whether the emotion itself is right or wrong, whether it's a positive outburst or a negative outburst. It's just the fact that something internally has been stirred up, and now the emotions are being expressed. That's the distinction between the noun and the verb. So, this is describing Jesus as an aorist passive, this passive voice. It was happening to him. He was moved. He was, he was, he was affected. That's an aorist tense, so it's just a single point at a time. It was just, it, it hit him. It was like as a single event, as an aorist tense, but it was passive. It was done to him. He comes face to face with this, with this grieving widow and he sees this coffin being carried out and he sees the crowds around this widow and it just hit him. Now, whether he was aware of, of the, the geography and where he was and, and how this was the, the, the same location where Elisha had brought this uh, boy back to life and so forth, whether, he had, whether that was going through his mind or not, we don't know. This is his first trip to Nain that the Scripture records, but it was close enough to Nazareth. He may have been around Nain many times. 
He may have, uh, you know, had carpentry work in Nain over the years, and he might be very familiar with the region of Nain and, and the region of Shunem and, and the area there where, as a part of their history, as a part of their uh, Bible heritage, that where Elisha had brought that uh, child back to life, so that when he comes face to face with this woman, it just hits him, and he's moved. It's not necessarily wrong, all right? Was, was, was Christ sitting there? See, when you and I encounter things face to face, it may be quite natural that they're going to hit us, that we will be moved, that we will encounter something that will just spark something and then we'll be, we'll be moved to action. Hopefully we can identify that as being something that's consistent with God's word. We obviously don't live our whole lives just bouncing from stimulus to stimulus and just constantly you know, being moved from this and moved from that. We're not constantly reacting to everything we encounter. But if our mind, if our thinking is being shaped by the Word of God, then it should happen at some point. He tells her to stop weeping. Stop weeping. In verse 13b, When the Lord saw her, He felt compassion for her, and He said to her, Do not weep. Stop weeping. Our first-year Greek students are going to get this. The difference between do not weep and stop weeping. The difference in the negative imperatives when you're, when you're prohibiting somebody. There's a difference when you tell them don't do something that hasn't started yet or stop doing something that has already started, but you want to go ahead and stop it right now. Don't do any more of it. <laughs> All right? So, you know, for, for a young child who's never done drugs ever, you say to them, don't do drugs. Right? That's the imperative. Don't do drugs. But... Maybe they have done drugs. Now, you, what, now what do you say? Stop doing drugs. Stop it. You know, whatever's been in the past is in the past, but from this point forward, stop it. Okay? Well, that's the form of the imperative that we have here, the negative imperative. We call that a prohibition. He says, stop crying. Not do not weep, but stop weeping. She's in the process of weeping, and he tells her to stop. Now, does she know who he is? No. <laughs> He's, uh, you know, he's, he's just crashing the wedding processional here. There, uh, whatever uh, words, whatever eulogy was given in the town uh, is done. And now they're in this processional. They're going out to the burial place. And uh, well, they'll have more words there. And then they'll commit the body to the ground. Uh, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust and all that. And then, but here, and here comes a stranger who steps in the middle of this way and touches the, uh, the coffin he came up and touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt. And uh, he just gives this total stranger, gives her the order, stop weeping as an imperative. Then he gives the boy an imperative. He tells the boy, arise, Luke seven fourteen. Arise. So she's got a command. It doesn't really say that she obeys him. It doesn't really say what she does. In fact, we don't see her until he, he gives her the, the, the boy back in verse 15. The dead man, the, the dead one. I have a problem with the word man in there. It should just be the dead man or the dead boy. Um, it's masculine singular, so we could use either man or boy. The dead one sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. 
Okay, and we're, he's called a young man, a neoniska in verse 14, vocative uh, case there. He's a young man. He's probably just a kid. And, G, and he gets up. So here's his imperative, the imperative of the son, Agurthati. It's a passive imperative. You haven't learned these yet. You've learned the, the present passives, but this is an aorist passive. You only have to get up once. <laughs> you know, a present imperative is over and over and over again. Keep getting up, keep standing up or whatever. This is just an aorist imperative. It's a one time only command. Get up. So it's an aorist imperative, but it is a passive. Be raised up. Agero. To wake, to rouse, to waken, to lift up. Now here's where your vocabulary doesn't help you any. Because agero itself doesn't mean it has to be a miracle. If the person was just sleeping and he wakes up, that's agero. If a person was sitting down at a table and he stands up, that's a gero. There's nothing magical or, or miraculous about a gero. But if the person's dead and he gets up, that's a miracle. <laughs> All right. It's the same verb that's used, whether he's sitting down, laying down, asleep, or dead. It's the same word that's used. It means get up. Clearly, though, if the person's dead, then there's something miraculous about the activity of getting up. Agero, and he orders him to be raised. Be raised is a passive imperative. Be raised. We've discussed passive imperatives in the past. How do you obey a passive imperative? You just let it happen. Yeah, passive imperative. You let it happen. Does this boy really have a choice? <laughs> How do you not? Let it happen. See. Um, well, depending on the imperative, I guess you could take steps to keep it from happening. Um, if, uh, if we're told to be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. That's a passive imperative. We were discussing that this morning. A passive imperative from Romans chapter 12. Be transformed. Say, okay, how do I do that? Because it's passive. It's being done to you. What you do, though, is you put yourself into the position where that does happen and you don't take steps to prevent that from being happening. See, you can prevent that from being hap from happening by doing what? Skipping Bible class, not being in the word, not being in prayer. You can go carnal and keep yourself from being transformed. And what you end up doing is you're being conformed, according to Romans 12. So a passive imperative, the way you obey a passive imperative is you let it happen. And you don't take steps to keep it from happening. So he says, be raised, be arise, or be raised, is the better way, because it's a passive imperative. Be raised. Now, what does the boy have to do to obey that? Nothing. He just has to let it happen. You wonder, though, <laughs> volitionally, could he have said no? <laughs> no. You know, any more than Lazarus, Lazarus could have stayed uh, in Sheol when, when uh, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. That was an imperative. And here comes the mummy out of the tomb. He's been dead four days. He's all wrapped up in these cloths. Be raised. So she's got a command. He's got a command. And fear gripped them. Fear gripped them. Well, I'd say so. <laughs> I mean, of all the miracles that have ever been done in the ministry uh, to this point that the Lord has accomplished, 
you know, healing is one thing, but this kid was dead. Something that had only been done three times in the Old Testament. And all within a generation of one another. Elijah and Elisha, in, in subsequent generations, they overlapped some. And those three resuscitations that took place in the Old Testament. I mean, Abraham, when he offered Isaac, he had a faith that God was able to bring someone back from the dead. But it didn't happen on Mount Moriah. God held Abraham's hand and kept him from killing Isaac. And so there had not been a, a resuscitation. There had not been a restoration of physical life until the prophet Elijah. And, uh, and then two more after the prophet Elisha. And so, you know, when you look back over 4,000 years of history, this doesn't happen every day. It's only happened three times in the history of the human race. And now before their very eyes, here it is happening again. So fear gripped them. The, the, I didn't put it in the slide or anything, but the, the verb there is the same one that we have in 1 Corinthians 10 where no temptation has overtaken you. No temptation has gripped you. No temptation has grabbed hold of you in a controlling, compelling way. Except the human ones. Except the ones that are common to man. And this is what we, we have here with this fear, is that it has grabbed hold of them in a compelling and controlling way. Like when temptation grabs hold of us in compelling and controlling ways. We find because we're not resisting the temptation, because we're not rejecting the temptation, because we're not fleeing from the temptation, what are we doing? We're playing with it. And the moment we do that, what happens? It's grabbed hold of us. It's grabbed hold of us. See, when you start toying with that idea, <laughs> what have you done? You're playing with it. All right? And this is what... It's, it's, it's holding, it's gripping you in a controlling and compelling way. That's what happens with temptation in, in 1 Corinthians 10. Why we had to go through that study to understand that whatever it is, it's common to man and we've got resources to answer that. He's, we, God has provided a, an equus' conclusion for us to endure the test. Not to play with it, not to toy with it, not to be controlled by it. We should be the ones in control. So here is fear, and it's got them gripped. Is it a godly fear? We talk about when we're talking about the fear of the Lord. I believe so. Or is it a carnal fear? Are they terrified? Are they scared? I believe no. I believe this is a godly fear. I believe it is a godly fear that has gripped them because they have now come face to face with divine power, and they've come face to face with a divine power that overpowers anything in the human experience. Physical death is the end of the human experience as far as fearful humanity is concerned. The devil has a power through fear that is through the fear of death. And here is divine power that is showing itself more powerful than human death, physical death. And this widow and these friends and all the people here in this town are now coming face to face with a divine power that is over even physical death. And that fear then grips them. I believe it's the godly fear, the awe and the reverence. The fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. And it has gripped them. And we see the, re the response of it. They don't run terrified. They begin glorifying God. The fear that is gripping them in a controlling and compelling manner is prompting their testimony, their praise, their worship, their glorifying God. 
They've got two items to testify. They've got a two-part message. A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. But fear has gripped them. Man. All right, we've got three minutes. How fast can we run in three minutes? Glorifying God. Let me just throw these up here. I'll let you because we're two weeks away from the next class. I don't want to. Uh, nope. Let me give you the A, B, and C. And you can get the scriptures down, and then whatever we can't cover in three minutes, you can look up yourself. We'll come back in two weeks, and we'll be ready for episode twenty. Uh, but the fear gripped them. What did they do? Because of that fear, they glorified God. And there's some scriptures there that we want to deal with, including Matthew five sixteen. Matthew 9, 8, Matthew 15, 31, Luke 2, 20, Luke 13, 13, Luke 23, 47. Glorifying God. Saying, now wasn't it terrible? This kid had to die. The mother had to go through this grief. It resulted in the glory of God. Now, what if the kid didn't come back to life? Should it still result in the glory of God? We've been praying for, Ernest, for uh, Aaron Potts. We've been praying earnestly for Aaron Potts and the fervent effectual prayer availeth much. But, and I know the common prayer, the heart desire, the human prayer is God heal him. We want God to heal this little boy from his brain tumor. Why? Well, so he doesn't die. So that he lives. Because he's just an 11 year old boy. And that's a sad thing to, to see happen. And you just, you, you, you weep for the parents and for the brother that can't handle what's going on and the, the parents and grandparents and all the extended family and all that. But if it's not God's will for that boy to live and we pray, heal him, heal him, heal him, do we set ourselves up for a disappointment when he doesn't get healed? When he dies? Do we then blame God? Do we say, well, you didn't answer our prayers? The overall purpose is God's glory. And we all have a certain number of days in which to live. If his purpose for his life was only 11 years, then he's accomplished the work that God sent for him to do. We should rejoice that he's born again. Do we know that? Yes, we do know that. That's been part of the story all, all, all along in this in this whole prayer ordeal he's going to be with the lord if the lord takes him home that's where he's going to be so the result is glory whether the 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 prayer is answered in a way that we like or not it's answered in a way that gives jesus christ the glory now the result here of course the kid lives and and glory takes place but the result should be glorification whatever the result is because everything god does he does in perfection and he's never unfair with anything that he does it doesn't change the glory if the answer to prayer is different. Is what we're trying to say. They do identify that a great prophet has arisen. They do testify that God has visited his people. It is indeed the Lord. It is Hakurios, Jehovah, that is here, that has restored this child's life. Then, then we'll talk about how the report concerning him went out under point eight. And then we will spend the time also to read... That's different. 
to read a uh, paragraph or to read a chapter out of Edersheim's Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. He has a, a very enjoyable read on this particular episode, and uh, we'll spend some time reading that. So two weeks from now, we'll come back and we'll deal with this, wrapping it up. And then as we deal with this report concerning him, one of those reports, in verse 17, it says the report concerning him went out. And then in response to that report, then uh, John the Baptist is going to send some messengers to uh, to Jesus Christ. And because of this resurrection or this resuscitation, because of this dead receiving life, um, the uh, John the Baptist has his final evidence of the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. And we'll we'll talk about that as well. I'm going to close here in prayer. I will take a question if you have any questions. I, I used the term resurrection a moment ago by mistake. I'm trying very clearly to not use resurrection for this miracle or for Lazarus or for Jairus' daughter or for the three times it happened in the Old Testament. A resurrection is what you and I will have when we receive our new bodies, our resurrection bodies. Uh, a resuscitation is what's taking place here, that they are being restored to their previous body. Their previous body is being uh, being re-enlivened, as it were. Okay, And so this kid, he's going to die again at some point. Lazarus is going to die again at some point. The, these people that are restored back to physical life, they resume their normal biological days, and then at some future point, again, their time expires. All right? And so I prefer to, ref, to refer to this as a resuscitation that is a restoration back to the biological, physical life, not a resurrection. So if I, if I slip up occasionally and call these resurrection miracles, then you'll understand that's a mistake on my part. The very first resurrection ever was Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn from the dead. That is the uh, resurrection of the life, and that's, uh, that's a significant, significant doctrine. All right. Any questions, anything at all before we dismiss in prayer? Casey? Uh-huh. Uh, Septuagint will use curios for, for Adonai when it occurs there. Yeah. Yeah. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We do pray for Austin Bible Church. We thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to travel to Spokane. We pray for your uh, hand of blessing upon this flock in, uh, in my absence. Pray for, thank you for the men that will be teaching. Pray uh, for uh, shepherding protection to take place. I thank you for the discernment of the deacons to keep an eye on things. And we just thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.